Rami's Aid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is Sean Delgrand, Chief Executive Officer of the Delgrand Dealer Group, aka DGDG, in the Bay Area, California. Today, DGDG is the largest privately held automotive group in the Bay Area, but Sean's route to success has not been traditional. Starting right out of college at UCLA with the glitz and glamour of Hollywood's finest, Sean found himself as an actor starring in movie and television roles alongside the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio and Adam Sandler, just to name a few. Okay, that's a slight embellishment, as you'll hear later. But (laughs) from a short-lived acting career to helping his dad with a cell phone company in Tupelo, Mississippi, side note, Tupelo, Mississippi is the birthplace of Elvis Presley. For the past 25 plus years, Sean has helped grow a small family business into the very successful DGDG it is today. Be happy, in quotes, is a mantra at DGDG. And when Sean talks about his family, his kids, being a warrior, and his business, you can tell he lives that mantra as well. We had a lot of fun during this conversation, and I know you listeners will enjoy it as well. That said, here's my conversation with Sean Del Grant. This episode is brought to you by Cleanse on the Go. As potential sponsors approached me to advertise on my podcast this past year, I made a conscious decision to only bring on sponsors I absolutely believe in, and Cleanse on the Go is just that. A cleanse for me had nothing to do with weight loss, although it does that as well if that's what you're looking for, but more of a mental reset. I love the two-day cleanse option they have, but you have the choice of either a one, two, or three-day option to cater to your needs and wants. The beauty of Cleanse on the Go is its mobility. As most of my loyal listeners know, I absolutely promote a healthy eating and exercise lifestyle. But I'm a single dad, two kids, working 24-7, so to say I'm a bit busy is a ludicrous understatement. Cleanse on the Go is super easy to use. They're just small packets you mix with water. These small packets can fit easily into purses or pockets and are great for travelers, busy lifestyles, or embarrassingly lazy lifestyles, if that is you. As a listener to the Rami Zaid Show, you can get 17% off your order if you go to their website. It's simply cleanseonthego.com, one word. Pick the cleanse you want, and under discount code, just type in my first name, Rami, R-O-M-Y, and you'll receive 17% off. Do it. You'll love it. Now let's get back to the Rami Zaid Show. Sean Dale Grand, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Thank you, brother. Good to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one, Sean, and we'll get into your life in the Del Grand Dealer Group soon. But as Chief Executive Officer of the Del Grand Dealership, I did want to start with you telling the listeners about post UCLA and your acting career. I love that. <laughs> right out of the gates from UCLA, you were an actor. Tell the listeners about that. It's a bit of a farce, to be honest. Like, if people are like, so were you an actor? And I'm like, well, d- d- define an actor, because I was really not an actor. I mean, I did commercials. And right out of college, it was interesting. I um, I had finished playing soccer at UCLA. And so 
my buddy was uh, doing commercials. He's like, you should go do it, man. It's like, it's cool. It could be good money. And so I went down and before I knew it, I was in an acting class and that was probably the coolest part. I was with some really cool actors like uh, Brandon Lee was in my class. Adam Sandler was in my class. Oh. Faith Ford. So I had these, I had an amazing acting coach and I was learning to act and I was not a good actor. I realized that like, <laughs> I was not good at playing other people. And so, um, but I actually, the first true audition I went on was for a movie called My Mom is a Werewolf. And uh, I don't know how I got a role named Ralphie. And uh, he was a neighborhood kid and was uh, a love interest in one of the other characters or something. And so anyway, it was it was cool. I mean, it was amazing being on set, learning lines, understanding collaboration. And then it was really fun going to the premiere. And then, uh, you know, I remember we were leaving the uh, the premiere and I was walking out with my mom and dad. And I'd warned them before I said, listen, this is like a B movie. And uh, they're like, oh, no. So they, we went in and. It was great. The producer and director did their presentation. We're walking back out through the Culver Studios. It's a beautiful night in LA. And and uh, my dad puts his arm around me. He's like, hey, son, that was not a B movie. That was a C movie. <laughs> <laughs> I and I said, oh. he said, no, you were great. I have I have a few minutes on screen. And, and then I did commercials and I did a couple other TV shows. And I realized quickly that I was not an actor and I, and I quickly, I was transitioning between acting and doing real estate because I thought I wanted to be a developer. And I realized that in real estate, you could work 14 hours a day and control your own destiny. And in acting, it was like, they would call you for an audition. And if you were the right look or the right height or the right type of actor, you could, you would have a shot. But I soon realized that I liked control of my own destiny and that was in business. I love it. You know, I got I do a ton of research before these shows. And if you Google the words Sean Del Grand and actor, there is this awesome pic of you in a white tank top pulling this like John Travolta, Danny Zuko from Greece meets James Dean. Look, it's the best picture. Uh, so listeners, I, go Google it after this. Yeah, don't Google <laughs> it. I don't know where that I think that was actually when I was on what show? Oh, that was when I was on The Outsiders. So I did, when The Outsiders came out as a TV series, I uh, had a part as a greaser. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was actually very close to having the, the role of Soda Pop and clearly did not get that and wasn't probably really the right guy for that at that time. But anyway, it was, uh, yeah, that's not a, not a great photo. No, I saw The Outsiders. That series was 1990. And do you know, you know, there was a fellow actor with you in that first series that ended up being pretty famous. You're aware who I'm talking about? There were a few. Who are you thinking of? So there was a, a role of Kid Fighting Scout played by Leonardo DiCaprio, the same season that you were the greaser in that same show. Yeah, I know he was not in the uh, in the pilot, but I think there were actually a whole bunch of really successful guys that went on and had great careers. So That's awesome. Did, I was Sean, not I mean, <laughs> on a serious note, though, with with acting, was there anything that you could pull from today from those acting days or, or you know, in the business life, so to speak, from when you were acting? Yeah, well, no doubt. And I've thought about that. So in acting class, actually, there you do a bunch of exercises and some of them are there's all kinds of different sort of exercises that you do to become a better actor. And I realized that the exercises I was best at is when I was playing myself. And I think, you know, when you when you sort of, you know, begin to get comfortable in front of other people and, you know, either being another character or being yourself, but ended up just with reps of, of presenting, if you will. And 
I would say today in my current world, it, it has helped a lot just feeling very comfortable, you know, sharing story, sharing vision, sort of helping lead the team on where we want to go. And so I would say that that has been the best takeaway is just being comfortable in front of people. Yeah. Is there a, a role, whether it was a show, commercial, whatever, that, that sticks out as their favorite of yours? I would say that the the craziest role, I had this other role on on the show called, it was The Judge. It was The Judge. And I actually played a high school kid who was playing football and ended up paralyzed. And oh. in this role, I was, it was very crazy to play a character with without feeling in your in your arms and legs and I found myself twitching and moving and they would have to cut and be like you know remember so I don't know that was fun that was a challenging role I remember I remember leaving after a few days like of of doing that and like I was exhausted I was like yeah this is not my highest and best use (laughs) so Sean with uh with each and every show that I do I ask my guests and their executives VCs athletes you know, celebrities, actors, how they start their day. And it's very interesting, the feedback I get from my listeners. They really like hearing how these different people start their day. So could you give us a little bit of color on how you start your day in general? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, I've been around a lot of very successful people and I do find that the most successful people, you know, start the day, you know, with a great mindset and, you know, ready to go and ready to tackle what's in front of you and execute on your plan. And so for me, a perfect day, I mean, today was a great day. I have already uh, spent time with my three amazing kids and uh, we had breakfast. We jumped in the jacuzzi. We actually Monday, we, we do our Monday mornings. We highlighted a whole bunch of great things about the weekend and reflect and um, talk about their successes and have a ton of gratitude for what the kids did over the weekend and our togetherness and all that. And then I got a workout in and, you know, and I feel great. And so for me, what I like to do is just get up and get ready to go. And usually that includes a workout. And then I, I think it's, it's knowing what I have in front of me. So, you know, I have, I'm I'm incredibly organized with my to-do list and I have a, I have a list here today already done in front of me. And it's like, what do we got in front? And it's prioritized. And I think I learned that years ago by use of the Franklin planner. And I had a really cool boss oh, yeah. <laughs> back in the day. And he was a Southern gentleman. And he said, all right, buddy, here's the deal. We're going to get you. I was on notepads and what have you. And he's like, I'm going to get you in a Franklin and I'm going to, sh- I'm going to show you how to get organized. And he used to say to me, we're going to plan our work and we're going to work our plan. And I think that, that has just stuck with me is, really having clarity on the plan that you need to you need to execute on. And so my day starts with making sure that I know I feel right, my head is right, I'm excited and I'm ready to go and I know what's in front and I have my calendar planned, I have my to-dos planned and my priorities planned. So So are are you still rocking the Franklin or now is it have you progressed at least to 2021 on the computer with that? It's with funny. So I'm on the computer but I, I love the Franklin. So I sometimes use journals but I find that I would rather actually, I have a Franklin that is more actually just for journaling and mm-hmm. sort of out of meetings. And then I can have those and I know the day it was and it's more sequential, but everything today is actually on Outlook for me. So between yeah. my tasks and my calendar. Yeah. And those tasks, Sean, so are you planning this the night before? So Sunday night, you have the calendar down or are you waking up and saying, okay, this is, 
I'm just wondering how far ahead do you get of the day? Yeah. So it's, it's ironic here because we're doing this on a Monday here and Sundays for my life forever have been incredibly important evenings and Sunday evenings have, I believe set me up for a lot of my success because I am really, really focused by the time Monday morning comes, I am rolling and I'm not trying to figure out where I'm going or what I need to do. So, you know, in this case, last night was not a Sunday planning night. It was an early Monday morning planning because I had my sister and we had a lot of fun and the kids. So I am ready to roll and it's detailed and clear and planned. And so it's, you know, between my my outlook and my notes, it's we're, we're good to go. And tell us a little bit about the workout. Do you you switch it up? Are you a Peloton guy? Or I guess, what's the workout look like for you on a general basis? It's been a journey of, of fitness, right? I mean, I was incredibly fit when I was young, you know, playing soccer at a high level and, and trained really intense. Today, I work out primarily just to make sure that I feel good and that my body feels good. And when my body feels good, I think that's really important for my mind and my soul to feel good. So I mix it up. I mean, I'm, I I do cardio four, five, six days a week. I push a little bit of weight, you know, two, three days a week. My cardio includes a little Peloton, a little elliptical, a little treadmill, some yeah. hikes. So it's really about staying active and, and making sure that the body feels good. Love it. I want to touch on, uh, you mentioned UCLA and soccer a few times, Sean, and most of the time, especially the executives, VCs, they attribute one of many tipping points to their college experience and would love to hear about UCLA, why you chose UCLA and the soccer experience while you were there. Well, incredibly fortunate that I ended up being able to play soccer at UCLA. So at the time in the mid eighties, you know, it was top program in the country, top coaching staff, all the top players went there and I had had a, a good, but not like an amazing sort of young high school career. So I was a good player, but I wasn't, you know, a parade All-American type of player. And I really had a great growth spurt sort of, you know, junior year, ended up making the California, Northern California state team, had a great coach, two great coaches, Steve Sampson and Mitch Murray, that I think really, you know, facilitated my growth and ended up with these sort of great coaches slash mentors that had a huge impact on my life. And I think fortunately propelled me to be recruited and ended up at UCLA. And once, you know, you, you get the nod that you're, you're wanted by UCLA soccer, there really was no, no close second. So I knew that moment, that's where I was going to go. And I knew that um, I was coming into an amazing team and I need to be incredibly prepared and fit and I was significantly smaller than most of the other players out there and uh, and worked hard on on speed, strength, fitness, and ended up having truly the most amazing time at UCLA. I mean, being around incredible athletes with, you know, incredible coaches, the high desire to win. We were often ranked number one in the country year after year, and it was just an incredible experience. And think, you know, the, the number one takeaway for me there was, was all about preparation. And we were prepared as players. We were prepared as a team. Our coach did a great job of, of guiding us on who we were playing and how our tactical strategy was going to be to beat them. But we were incredibly prepared. And I think that today in my life, which talks a little bit about the organization we talked about, but in general, 
being prepared and putting the work in beforehand allows you, you know, to have successes when opportunities or if opportunities are presented. And so just understanding a whole other level of, of output of work and it's quantity of work and quality of work. And I mean, we trained, I mean, in double days, I mean, it was incredible what we'd be doing in the middle of August, you know, training four or five hours a day. I mean, just leaving it out on the field and, you know, and then watching guys leaving it even more out on the field. And that would just sort of propel you to just want to compete at a higher level. And, and it was a great team, but everybody was competing for a starting spot. And when you had a starting spot, you knew there were guys that wanted your spot, but it was all done in the right manner. And, and uh, you know, when we got back to the locker room or we were hanging out after, it was a great, an amazing, you know, group of young men that were, you know, that were all aligned with, you know, with the UCLA badge on their, on their yeah. chest and going to battle. It was pretty cool. That's great, Sean. So, so UCLA, then you, well, we talked about the acting career, but then tell us about Mississippi. Cause I believe, you know, right after the acting career, there was a, a gig of all places, I think in Tupelo. Is that how you pronounce it? In Mississippi? Tupelo. Yeah. Tupelo. Tupelo. Okay. Honey, it's Tupelo. birthplace of Elvis. Come on, Rami. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Tupelo, Mississippi. So again, sort of how life works. You don't know the journeys that you end up on and, and why and when and how. But, you know, as I look back today, potentially another of the three greatest years I ever had as far as business and relationships. So I had the dream of being a, a real estate developer, uh, was working at a top brokerage firm in Brentwood, California, you know, selling homes, learning the residential market, wanted to be a builder. And my dad, of all things, with a partner had randomly won through a lottery through the FCC, the rights to build a cellular phone company in Tupelo, Mississippi, Northeast Mississippi. So I'd never been there. We drove the area and I thought this would be an amazing opportunity to start a business from the ground up. But I lived in LA, I had my vision. And then my dad just said, you know, is there any chance you could come out just as we get it rolling for 30, 60, 90 days? And I just said, I'd love to, but I can't. And then he just, in the way my father is, and he's amazing. He's like, how about just a little bit of help? And so I ended up going out there for what I thought was three months and the way it all worked out, they needed my help longer. And I ended up in Tupelo, Mississippi, really learning to build a business from the ground up. The company was called Cellular One of Northeast Mississippi. And we ended up opening up three offices and it was really like getting a, an MBA. I mean, I, you know, it's just interesting, you know, I never started a business like that. And it was just uh, incredible to learn about sales, marketing, service, parts, inventory control, customer service, logistics. The list just went on. And my father would come out every six weeks, an incredible mentor, gave me a ton of guidance. And I had a couple other general managers that really gave me some great guidance and mentorship. And, uh, and I spent three years there with incredible people. You know, it's just a beautiful community, salt of the earth people and really just experienced the South. And, you know, I mean, people were just so kind and thoughtful and, and you know, brought me into their world and, and I loved it. And it was a special time in my life, personally, professionally. And then I, yeah, and then I left, came back to California. But uh, I, I gotta imagine, I mean, I would love for you to talk about, you know, Bay Area, 
to LA. You're selling homes in Brentwood. I'm assuming that's the stars of Hollywood are centered around you. And then you go to Tupelo, Mississippi. I mean, the culture shock and just the lifestyle of Southern versus where you were at UCLA must have been pretty massive at such a young age. And would love to kind of know what that was like and maybe what you learned as far as being placed all of a sudden in a very foreign land and trying to run a business. Yeah, I I would say that early it was culture shock. It was. I mean, it just nothing is familiar. And, you you know, you live in in the middle of, you know, one of the largest thriving metropolises in the world in Los Angeles, right in the heart of it. And then I moved to Tupelo, which was in northeast Mississippi, by the way, the largest town. And it was 30,000 people. And I mean, so that was like the center of the area. And I was living in the center of where I lived at, you know, a million people or whatever. It was just, you know, 2 million people, 3 million people right where we live. So it was different. But, you know, at the end of the day, you meet quality people and the place is different. The roads are different. The music was different. The restaurants were different. But at the end of the day, I just found myself attracted to really amazing people and different activities. I mean, you know, I hadn't fished a lot and found myself fishing and then we were water skiing and then we were, you know, it was just, it was unbelievable. I was was fortunate. I was able to coach soccer while I was out there. So I coached a group of, uh, of uh, high school kids, 16 and 17 year olds. And it was amazing to be able to sort of help lead those kids and, some of them went on and have had great careers and I've kept in touch with them. And it's been fun to watch that and know that maybe I had a little bit of impact on their life at some point. And, uh, but it's a very different culture when you go too below to Los Angeles, but you know, even in a large city like LA, you do find yourself, you know, attracted to just quality people that have the, you know, the right sort of values, which is, you know, caring for others and being thoughtful and wanting to have fun. And in Tupelo, Mississippi, guess what? I found them. They were awesome. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. So Tupelo, you mentioned you left, then came back and that gets you to the Dale Grand dealer group with your father. And before we jump into that, Sean, would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about the Dale Grand dealer group, exactly what that is. Absolutely. So today, uh, DGDG, which is Dell Grand dealer group is a, Pretty cool business. We have uh, 12 dealerships, 15 brands located in the heart of Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. And we have just under a thousand team members. And we, uh, we retail between 25 and 30,000 new and pre-owned vehicles a year. And it's centered on culture and it's centered on technology. And uh, we've just been fortunate. I've been now here 25 years with my father who you know, had built a really cool business beforehand. And uh, together, he and I work side by side with his guidance and leadership and my desire to put in the hours and continue to embrace technology and culture. And, and collectively, we, you know, built this business to, you know, nearly a billion dollars in sales on an annual basis. So uh, it's been a great journey. That's awesome. November of 19, I read an article you had in the business journal that you yourself are not a car enthusiast which is so funny to hear you owning a, a car dealer group, an auto dealer group. Could you tell right. the listeners about that? So, yeah, I, it's interesting. And I don't think my father was either. We never had collectibles and, you know, cool cars and 
it's just sort of hasn't been part of the DNA of my father, myself. We just drive the brands we have. There's no doubt that cars are amazing and they, they, they're amazing. You know, every year they're even more amazing as we, we just watch the technology and we watch, you know, the, the EV boom and, and as this thing evolves, but I myself just don't have, I don't own a lot. I don't own cars. I don't really love cars, but so in some sense, maybe you could say cars are like widgets. They're beautiful, expensive, really important widgets to a lot of people. But for me, that just happens to be what we sell. And, you know, I derive all of my sort of, you know, satisfaction, if you will, from, you know, how do we deliver a world-class guest experience for every time we're, we're face-to-face with a, with a customer, whether it be in sales or service or in, in any aspect of the business. And in, or, in order to do that, you have to assemble, you know, a world-class team that can provide a world-class, you know, set of processes and expectations to, to deliver that to our guests. And so cars are awesome. And the good news is, is, you know, most people need them, not a yeah. lot of tra- great transportation in the Bay area. So most people have at least one car, some have two, three, four, five. And if you are able to provide you know, a great experience, which includes upfront pricing with validation and a limited negotiation or no negotiation and quality team members that we're not trying to sell cars. We're just trying to help people buy cars. And so if you come at it with that approach, our, our teams have just, you know, grown and developed over the years and are, are wonderful. And that's perhaps how we've evolved to becoming the largest family owned dealer group in the Bay area. So it's pretty, what was your first car, Sean? Do you remember the first car you ever had? I do. So it was interesting. So uh, I used to joke with people. Some of my buddies were getting cars when they were 16. I had to pay for my own car. And my dad was a car dealer. So I'm still very proud of the fact that I bought (laughs) my first. It was a 1974 or 76 Mitsubishi Challenger. And it was, uh, I crashed it three weeks after my 16th birthday. Nicely done. Into uh, a sign. (laughs) Oh. on a rainy November day. So, but I had to pay for the uh, deductible and then uh, I ended up buying a Capri after that. And then I got at UCLA, I bought a, a Jetta. I remember a four speed Jetta, it was pretty cool. And, but I paid for that. The only time I ever didn't pay for my car was when I became a partner with my father in 1976 at the dealership. So it took quite a few years to actually not be owning my own, not not paying for my own car. I had to, I had to buy the dealership part of the yeah. dealership to, be, to get a car. So anyway, pretty cool. So that first car, you get in an accident in three weeks, Sean. I, is dad and mom and dad saying, "Hey, Sean, you're you're paying this thing. You got to work for it to make up for the accident." Absolutely. The deductible? Yeah. yeah, I love yeah, it was that. Five hundred dollar deductible. Okay. And uh, I was making five dollars an hour. Had a hundred hours. Hundred hours. <laughs> and I was doing it after school, then after soccer training. And I would go to the dealership from five till nine and I was answering phones and filing papers and it's the way it went, but all good lessons. And I'm, and I'm grateful for that accountability. I want you to take us back. You and your dad, I think as the story goes, you say, Hey dad, you have the dealership. Let's make this a dealer group. When was this? And what was the plan at the time? And the reason I asked that is, was there any hesitation with you, your dad, when you were saying, hey, let's grow and accelerate this thing into a dealer group for the business? Was there hesitations, fears? I guess, what was going on at that moment? So I think the first thing is, is, is 
when I was at UCLA, people would ask me, do you know what you want to do? I say, well, I don't know what I want to do exactly. I just know I don't want to be in the car business. So it was actually interesting because I just thought, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is be in the car business. I want to go pave my own road and I have a plan and that's what I want to do. And then as I had the opportunity in Mississippi to work side by side with my father and learn from him from 1991 to 94, I realized I just absolutely you know, loved working with him and learning from him. And then when I moved back to LA in 95, I was actually selling products through one of my father's friends to dealerships. And so I started going into a bunch of these dealerships in Southern California. And I saw like a whole bunch of these large dealer groups. And I thought, wow, my father and I could do this because he had one dealership at the time. He had a great Mazda store. So I called him one day and I said, how about this? Why don't I I love working with you. I would love to be in Northern California. LA feels pretty big right now after living in Tupelo for three years. Sure. <laughs> Why don't I stay down here for a year and I'm going to learn how to sell cars, work in finance, work with used cars, go to the auctions, and then I'll come up there. But maybe we could take your one store and we could build it into a dealer group. And he said, all right, well, we'll play all that by ear, but why don't you you know, finish your year out there? And so 95, I spent learning the business on my own, went out, got jobs, and then in 1996, I moved up and my dad had the dealership and we went to work and I just was learning the business. And by 1998, we had bought the second dealership and that happened to be Oak Tree Mazda. And so I became the general manager there of that store. And then again, really learned the business from the ground up and running a store. And, and then after that, you know, the story just sort of the opportunities presented themselves and I think by 1998, we had five or six dealerships. And I think it wasn't long after I had been there, maybe two or three years where my father said, you know, there can only be one chief around here and it might as well be you at this point. You know, you're here, you're capable, you're working, you know, you're learning. I'll be here to support you, but, you know, you need to be the guy here to to go and do this, which was, I think, a, a really big deal. That's tough for a lot of, you know, self-made businessmen, businesswomen, entrepreneurs to sort of, you know, hand over the reins to a business that you started from the ground up. And I think he realized that I had the desire and the the wherewithal and he had the experience to be able to, you know, help coach, guide and and support. And, you know, it was a pretty good team, he and I, and, and has been. And, and, uh, and then I think as we've grown, it's been neat because I've been able to, you know, sort of do the same thing where, We've built an amazing leadership team and they're incredibly capable and can run the day-to-day -day business. And I can focus on, you know, the vision of where we want to go and new acquisitions and manufacturer relationships and banking relationships and spending time with, you know, the rest of the organization sort of in a leadership role. So it's been nice to watch how my father and I have done it and how that's transcended over the 25 years now to the rest of our leadership team. 25 plus years later, Sean, obviously you guys are uber successful and are going to continue to be just knowing you. But you look back, let's just call that first few years. Is there anything in those first few years where you were trying to take from dealership to dealer group that you would have done differently? There's so many one of our philosophies at DGDG and mine personally is just it's all about getting better. You know, approaching it, you know, with humility, but, you know, with a high desire to be successful. And every time you have a new, a new strategy or a new acquisition, 
they don't always go per plan. And so I think that the, the primary learnings, I think, as I've become more experienced in, in business is, is that failures are okay. Defeats are okay. As long as there's learnings and as long as you dust yourself off and, and get up and charge harder. And so I think that I early days, I took a lot of losses or defeats more personally. And I think when you make it personal, I think it distracts from your ability to, you know, to react and, and move forward faster. So we've always figured it out. I think sometimes that delay has been things break, things don't go per plan. Things happen in the economy. Things happen with manufacturers. There's tsunamis. I mean, things happen. COVID happens. And once you get your head around the fact that that the plan of life or business never goes per plan, but that's actually the beauty of life. And then it's like, how do you adapt and how do you adjust? So I mean, I can tell you in 2001, the rest of the world didn't feel it, but in Silicon Valley, I mean, we truly had a dot-com implosion and we had three businesses that were successful one day. And I thought we got this under control and three or six months later, all the businesses were hemorrhaging, just losing money every month. And I was just almost in paralysis. And I was one of those great life experiences where my father's like, let's go grab a financial statement. Let's sit down. Let's go through every line item. Let's figure this out. Let's make the adjustments and really get down and make some, have tough discussions and tough decisions. And so ironically, and we did that. And I think 90 days later, the business had stabilized and then we were off and rolling. When 2008 came and the world abruptly changed, we quickly went through that. I I went through that exercise with our leadership team (laughs) instead of my dad going through it with me. And we quickly adapted. And as we look back now, I mean, a lot of our growth really happened really post Great Great Recession. We were able to right-size the ship, have a clearly defined plan. The entire organization, we were having weekly meetings. I would be bringing in groups of 20, 30, 40 people and had a graph, a chart that I would draw and say, this is between today and some point in time, there's going to be winners and losers. Every decision we make is going to be to make sure that we're a winner. We all need to adapt because it's adapt or die. And so 2008, we we adapted quickly and then we thrived. And so, you know, and then we had a great run, you know, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. And that machine sort of worked for quite a while. And we went through that again just 15 months ago with COVID. Right. And, you know, you go from having, you know, big, big months to not being able to sell a car. So if you're selling, you know, we're selling 2,000, 2,500 cars a month to zero, <laughs> Yeah, you need to adapt or die. Yeah. And it was great because again, this time the leadership team actually did the adapting and I was there to support and guide and we would have the discussions, but it truly was our core leadership team that guided us through making sure that we were tremendous communicators with our team, we had a clearly defined plan. We were focused on, you know, safety for our team and safety for our guests, ensuring that trust was there. And so as we navigated through COVID, I mean, it was challenging time, but we knew we were going to come out the other side and we knew that we were going to emerge even stronger than ever. And so, again, I think, you know, going back to your original question of, of early days, I think it's understanding that 
There are many things in life and business that you can't control. And it, but if you're really good at controlling the controllables, your chances for success are incredibly high. You touched on, you know, going through and thank you for that. You hit the early days, you hit dot com, you hit financial crisis, you hit COVID. I want to talk about your company culture. And the reason I bring that up, Bay Area News Group recognized you 10th year in a row, I believe, as top workplaces in 2020, which first of all, congratulations on that. That's an awesome feat. And I think something that, you know, notably in the press, you're very proud of. But on culture, you get hit with COVID 15 months ago. Tell us, you know, the company culture, is that something that was ingrained day one from your dad? Is that something that you had to build over the 25 years? And then when a pandemic, a global pandemic comes that no one was expecting, how do you keep that company culture not basically seeing your own teammates for many months on end? It's a great question. And it was, you know, a great learning experience. So I think that the first thing is, is that cultures are not built in short amount of times, you know, in a short period of time. It, it takes years and years and years to truly have something foundational. And I would say absolutely my father had always been focused on a world-class guest experience and taking care of his team. So I think that has always been there for 50 years inside our family. But, you know, that was also 40 people, you know, 60 team members, and when you're at a thousand team members, it's it's significantly different on how do you cascade culture. And so you're absolutely right. We are the most proud of winning top workplaces 10 years in a row, more than any award at, at DGDG. And we win a lot of the president's club for top sales and customer satisfaction, our chairman's round table. And the awards for the organization go on and on. But when your team and the community recognize you as a top workplace, it's really a collective body of work of all of the team members. And so we have always been focused on, on this. And I think we really doubled down in the last decade. And with, you know, we, we brought in the Disney Institute to help us really double down on that. And they, they did a great job of helping us really clarify and take our culture to a different level. At DGDG, we have four core values. The number one core value is integrity. And integrity is everything at DGDG. The second is care. The third is performance. And the fourth is efficiency. And so this culture, and we have so many other phrases inside DGDG, leadership through caring, and it's all about getting better. And But when you're faced with a pandemic, if you have a great culture in place, what it does is it ends up serving as this incredible foundation. And so everybody knows at the end of the day, if integrity and caring are our top two core values at DGDG, that we're going to do nothing. There are no decisions we'll ever make that will jeopardize that. So how do you do it when all of a sudden, you know, 850 team members are furloughed in a 48 hour period? And, and how do you communicate? And how do you do video conferencing? And, and trust me, it's not easy. And our HR team was, you know, did an amazing job but we had exposures and cases and I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, we're still exists, but we're still working our way through on now, when do we go with no masks? And, you know, I mean, so it's, it's been quite a journey, but the number one thing I would say that collectively our leadership team, our general managers, our department heads was that we talked about over and over and over is having a warrior mindset 
a warrior mindset. And that doesn't mean warrior like crazy warrior. That <laughs> means you can either be a victim of COVID or you can confront it head on and say, okay, what is it we can, what can we do today to figure this out? So when we couldn't sell cars, guess what we could do? We could actually still service cars. So we said, all right, well, let's go ahead and service cars and let's figure that we're going to do that by making sure that our team is safe and our guests are safe. And what are the processes we need to put in place? And how are we going to do that? Where do we have the car, you know, come? How do we, how do we keep our technicians safe? How about when the technicians get par- parts from our parts team? And so it was quite a process, but at the end of the day, this warrior mindset just said is when confronted with, with challenges and adversity, you must start with the decision that we are going to figure this out. We are going to win. We are going to persevere. We are going to get through this. And then we need to have a really clear plan and strategy that's communicated very well to the team that they can execute on. And simultaneously, I think what we did was we also said, what do we, we know that COVID is going to be here and it can be here for an extended period of time, but we also know at some point COVID won't be here. And so the pandemic will have passed. What do we want to look like after? And Mm -hmm. so we were very focused on integrity, caring, trust, and safety while also saying, what do we want to do? And so we really accelerated a lot of our technology, you know, programs that we had in place. So, I mean, during that time, we now can assist our guests in buying their car from beginning to end completely online. Our guests are, everybody in our showrooms, every team member uses an iPad. There's no more papers. Everybody in the service drive, everything is all iPads. So we are, we, so we really accelerated, I think a ton of our technology processes and, and platforms and have evolved as a higher performing, more efficient organization as well. And so COVID has challenged us, but I think it's really set us up to become better and to persevere. And I think today, while we're still on the tail end of the pandemic, I think we're better, we're, we're more fit as an organization today than we've ever been in 25 years. Something you mentioned a few minutes ago, Sean, that I thought would be interesting to hear a little bit more about was Disney. Would love to hear what that actually was and what it helped implement in your company. I've you know read a ton of Walt Disney books and he has a million quotes I love and that business is frankly amazing. And I know that they've helped out a lot of non-entertainment businesses. I mean, you're talking Mickey Mouse helping out a dealer group. So would love to know what Disney did for you guys and and a little bit about what they helped you with. Great question. So the Disney Institute is a business outside of Disney that really helps and guides Fortune 500 companies and all sizes on how to improve sort of a business strategy your business strategy and what you want to look like. And, and so I think the way that we were introduced to Disney, the Disney Institute ironically was, and, you know, kudos to General Motors and Chevrolet, they embraced the Disney Institute and the practices maybe seven, eight years ago. And they required the dealers to attend the Disney Institute. So I remember getting the email from General Motors saying in order to qualify for these programs, the dealer principal, not not the general manager, but the dealer principal needs to attend this. And I thought, 
I have so many things to do. The last thing I need to do is go to another <laughs> leadership management class in With Mickey Mouse. I don't right. go to Disneyland right now. <laughs> right. And I went down and spent two and a half days and left there incredibly enlightened, incredibly enlightened. And I think that there were a handful of just critical learnings. But the number one phrase that I left with is, is that Disney culture is by design. And so it's, it, it, the way it is, is clearly by design. And they had a plan for, for that. And they called it, you know, the leadership chain of excellence. And if you started at the end of that, where it ends, I loved how they said it. They said, we are a repeat. We are, we are a for-profit business, by the way. This is not a charity. It's a for-profit business. And that's okay. We need to make money here at Disney in order to improve the park and take care of our team members. And in order, and, and so their holy grail was, is, is when the guest was leaving Disneyland and they were tired and they just spent a ton of money and they'd been through this exhausting 12 hour day with their kids. When they were walking out, they would ask the guest two questions. Would you return? And then would you recommend? And if they got a yes for both of those, then they'd done a great job. And even though the people paid a lot of money and were exhausted, the experience was still unbelievable for them. The specialness, the magic of Disneyland and the way that they made it efficient. And, and, and that in order to do that, the, in order to get that, the guest experience had to be of a certain caliber. And in order to provide the great guest experience, you had to have a great team that could help provide that great guest experience. And in order for your team to be able to provide the guest experience, to be able to get the yes referral and yes recommend the recommend referral and return you had to have great leadership and so they talked about that the leadership at disney was there to help guide and train and select and nurture this team that could provide the experience that could get the yes and yes for repeat and referral and so when i left there i had this much clearer vision at dgdg that we wanted every guest that either bought or serviced with us to say, yes, I would recommend the dealership and yes, I would come back. And so I knew that we had a whole bunch of things that we needed to work on. But the number one thing that we worked on for the last eight years has been leadership and leadership training. And so we have a full-time leadership coach. We have, we have a general manager academy. We have a sales manager academy. We have a finance school. We have a product specialist training program. We have a service advisor training program. We have all of these training programs to create these career paths for our team members. And so if you have an unbelievable leadership team and leadership meaning could be vice presidents and directors, it could be general managers, it could be department heads, but everybody understands how important leadership is for your team to be able to nurture, hold accountable, support, recognize, reward, train your team then you're going to have a great team. And so if you have this great team that stays and wants to be there and loves what they do, then they're going to come to work with different energy and different attitude and different approach. And they're going to provide a different experience for the guests. And so the Disney Institute creates sort of a, a template for our organization to model after, and then you make it your own. And so our culture, you wouldn't see anything inside Disney that inside DGDG that feels like Disney. But if you really looked underneath the covers, you would see like our thought processes are very similar to Disney and the Disney Institute and, and many other really successful companies. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's frankly, it's probably why 10 years in a row you're winning the, the top place to work awards, Sean. And I think that it says a lot about you as a leader and what you're doing for your yourself and employees. And I want to take that, Sean, and you know, you've talked about journaling, you get your routine going, the stuff that you're doing for yourself and your teammates as far as leadership goes. But net of all that, your father, I just want you to take a minute and just say, a few things that you've learned from your father as a leader, as a father yourself of three incredible kids you mentioned earlier, what has your dad taught you that you can take, you know, daily? Uh, would love to hear about that. Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting, you know, my father is an amazing man, but he is one of those sort of, this is a very true and real story is that his strength, most of his strength, a lot of his strength is based on the fact that he has the most amazing wife in the world, who is my mom. And (laughs) it really is true. They've been married for nearly 60 years and they have an incredible relationship. And I think that they are admired by many people because he is just a great husband, you know, and he's obviously been an amazing dad to myself and my sister, Alicia. But he is so much of his success is based on the fact that my mom is such an incredible person and such an incredible support of his and um, just been an incredible part of the family. But my father came over from Australia at the age of 21, literally with nothing and ended up in in the United States and worked his way up and and figured it all out. And so he is truly one of the definitions of a self-made success story. But he embodies, you know, he also happened to be a multi- time world and national handball champion. So oh, really? <laughs> oh yeah. He probably has 25 world and national handball titles. Oh my so gosh. That's awesome. He's, he's prolific as a, a handball player and played from the time he was, you know, in his young twenties, but really at this high level from the time he was 50, probably to the time he was 85, where he just won every tournament that he was in. And he, <laughs> he was incredibly prepared. He was fitter than everybody but he was a true competitor. But at the end of the day, I think my father is just, he just cares for people and he just makes time for people. He is just kind and thoughtful warrior, if you will. It's just like he, he wants to compete and he wants to win and wants to be successful, but he does it the right way. And he always has. And I mean, he doesn't, you know, he loves nothing more now than than getting those thrills from watching his grandchildren compete. And he's at their soccer trainings and football games and soccer games. And and I think at the end, you know, whether they win or lose, he wants to make sure they had fun and that they tried hard and then he'll give his own life lessons. It's pretty cool. But he is a man who um, he is successful. He's been incredibly successful in business. But at the end of the day, his real success is just in life. It's being a family man and uh, and a friend to many. Love it. Thanks for sharing on your your mom and dad, Sean. That was great. And I love you, you know, over and over in this conversation, you use that word warrior here and there. And I just, I love that that word keeps popping up. It means a ton for you, I can tell. Yeah. With most of my guests, Sean, at the end, we do some fun rapid fire questions. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to let them rip for you. All right, rip away. Okay. First one, I call this my walk up to the plate question and you know major league baseball players they start walking up to the plate and there's a theme song that's playing for them is there a theme song you're walking up to the plate with a bat in your hand that you would want playing in the background 
<laughs> that's pretty funny. Well, there's, you know, that, that song changes about every five years, right? Sure. So, yeah, uh, of course. <laughs> but, you know, I like all kinds of music and I, and I'm, I'm not a huge music buff, but I would say that this is actually a good story that if people ask what song would they think of when they think of Shondell Grand, they would think of a song from 1981 by a band called Tommy Two-Tone. And it was the song 867-5309. Oh, nice. That was my phone number in high school. Yes. You're kidding. Like winning the lottery. Oh, Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I remember the day that that song hit the radio, and I got a call from these guys, and they said, our name's Tommy Two-Tone, and we're partying in Sacramento, and I was probably 15 years old or 16 years old. I think my parents were out to dinner, and I said, I'm totally confused. And they said, oh, yeah, you'll hear this song on the radio. And I think a month later, our phone would ring 500 times a day. Oh, my God. But that was my phone number growing up, 867-5309. And you know who they'd ask for every time they called? Jenny. <laughs> Jenny, Jenny, yeah, Jenny, right. Jenny, yeah. Oh, that's a great story. You. So then I, I, I did have some fun. I'd say, hold on a second, let me grab Jenny, and they're like, oh my god, <laughs> Jenny's there. And then I'd come up maybe a fake voice, or I'd have my sister do the Jenny voice. We had fun. With oh, her. I love it. That's a good one. All right, uh, next one. What is one thing, Sean, you do not mind spending money on? Gosh, well, I would say certainly, you know, as a dad. <laughs> your kids. I get way too much joy out of spending money on my kids. And so you gotta, you gotta balance that. You gotta, you gotta figure that out. But if I could spend money on everything, I I love providing experiences for my children. That's the number one thing I would say I like to spend money on. And then I would say the second thing is, is anything that helps expedite time. So speed, like, you know, I think that's really important. Yeah, I think, you know, if 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 anyone, Sean, I have learned from you that time is your most precious asset and the way that you run your day to day and make sure that time is spent with family, with kids is something that I pulled from you years ago, which is super valuable. And you you live it for sure. I'll give you one quick one quick story on that real quickly is I remember one day when uh my dad that we had we had a pool growing up and there there was a guy cleaning the pool and uh, or, or maybe one yeah maybe a guy mowing the lawn and I said well a lot of my my friends dads that the dads do it or they mow the lawn and, and he said you know I could do that but I would rather spend my time with you and mom and Alicia and do or go play handball and ha- and 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 that's why I work so hard so that I could pay for those because I want to spend the time so I I think that that has carried on with me. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Next one. Favorite quote. I have a million of them. They change all the time. But is there a quote, Sean, that sticks with you either in general or uh, as of late? Yeah, I have probably 50, but I'm going to give you my number one that I've been sharing with people from the day I met, including I share, I used to share this with the kids I coach soccer in Tupelo, Mississippi, but it was from a famous African marathoner. And it says, the will to win means nothing without the will to prepare. The will to win means nothing. Oh, right. Yeah, that's uh, Juma Juma Akanga, I think. Juma Akanga, I think, is the runner. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great quote, Sean. I love that. The will to win means nothing without the will to prepare. That's it. Wow. 
Great. Okay, I'm assuming your favorite sport's going to be soccer. That was going to be my next question. But is is there another one besides soccer? Is that the one that's the lead in the house right now? You know, again, everything is relative. So when it comes to spectating and my kids and my, my previous life, I would say absolutely it's soccer. However, my body doesn't want to go play a lot of soccer. So for sure, <laughs> I derive... Today, I derive all of my competitive juices and spirit out of golf. So I would say actually golf is for sure my number one favorite sport personally. Love it. All right. Next one. If you could choose a completely different position, and I'm going to throw out acting. I'll throw out cell phone (laughs) tower service. (laughs) I'll throw out cars. Sean, what would be another position that you would pick? Again, pretty ironic, right? That I said in in college, the only thing I don't want to do is be in the car business. And today I think about like, the only thing I really want to do is, is I love this and I love bringing technology to it. And I love this space. But I would say that if I picked another space, it would be something where I had the ability to, so whether it would be venture or private equity or investment banking, where I got to work with other businesses and other leaders and helping, you know, people turn around businesses or people take businesses and dream big and, and chase goals. Great. Great answer. Next one. What would you do if you were given a free 60 second ad during a Super Bowl game? Biggest audience in the globe. You have 60 seconds to say or show whatever you want. What would you do? Wow, you do. You got some good questions. I you got some good ones. Off. Yeah, <laughs> sixty second spot. Uh, wow, that's a really good one. You know, we run up. We run. We do a lot of commercials. And uh, would we be running a DGDG commercial here? So this could be DGDG. This could be Sean himself. This could be something you want the world to know. This could be your your company. Whatever you want. Yeah, I would say that that maybe it would be just a. Uh, it would probably be. A little bit of a DGDG commercial, but it would be just on the concept. But DGDG, our brand is, uh, the foundational brand is called Be Happy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would just say like at DGDG and in Shondell Grant's world, we want people to be happy. Like, and be able to show so many instances where life is so short and that people need to be present and be happy and figure out happiness. Great one. So I think the commercial will be predicated on be happy and being happy. Love that. Okay. If you were stranded on an island and could pick any celebrity, I'm taking family off the table, any celebrity dead or alive to be with you on that island, who would it be and why? Any celebrity? Uh, how long am I on the island for? You're, you're on that island, man. It's done. Done, it's done deal. Done? done deal. Yeah, you're on that island. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, I was going to say if it was a short time, I think I would want to bring uh, George Best. He was uh, just one of the most amazing soccer players ever from Manchester United and came over here, and I found him to be uh, funny, fun, crazy, and one of the greatest soccer players ever. So I figured we could could laugh, he could tell stories, we could play soccer, and and have a couple pints. So uh, let's go with Georgie Best. We'll go with Georgie. Okay, last question, Sean. This used to be called my last dinner, but the listeners thought saying last dinner was too morbid. So I'm calling it the ultimate dinner. What is on the plate or plates in front of you? And then what is in the glass if you'd like a cocktail or a beer in the glass? So I'm, uh, you know, it's probably not the greatest answer, but it's a little bit like, you know, 
being in the car business and me not, you know, loving cars, I think I'm the same. It's the same for me is if I was going to have the ultimate dinner, I would really have my three kids. I'd have my mom and my dad. I'd have my sister and family. I'd have my best crew of friends and be sitting around and the food would be whatever and the drink would be whatever. And we would be sitting there smiling, laughing, sharing stories and uh, just having the greatest time ever. Good answer. Sean, this has been a fantastic hour, no doubt about it. I knew it would be. Uh, I've known you for a long time, and this was a really special conversation for me. And I know that the listeners are going to take a lot of inspiration from this and a lot of fun, too. Is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? You know, you mentioned be happy, which I know is, is the motto, but anything you'd like to leave kind of as a, a departing gift for the listeners? Well, first of all, thank you for uh, sharing this time with me. And it's great to, great to do this with you. And so much respect for you and love this vision that you have. And I'm grateful that I get to be be part of this journey with you. I think that, you know, it's the same message I have for everybody I love and care for, including my children, that life is truly a journey. And it's really important to just sort of acknowledge, accept, and be grateful for this journey. And there's there's so many pieces in life that are incredible that I think we skip or we forget or we it's just about gratitude and an understanding that uh, it's not necessarily the way we envision it, but it's what we make it. And uh, and then so much of that starts with your approach and your attitude and your mindset. And so wake up and uh, and and just figure it out how to how to put a smile on your face and smiles around the rest of the people you want to be with and get after it. Go time. Great way to wrap it up, Sean. Thank you so much for your time. Rami, thank you. Have a wonderful day and uh, see you soon. Thanks. Thanks again for your time. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean Del Grand. You can find Sean and DGDG on LinkedIn or their website at www.dgdg.com. And you can find me at my website, RamiZaid.com. That's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And I hope you all learned something interesting.